How do you introduce the book of Romans? It's not an understatement to say that Romans has been one of the most influential books in the whole of history. This was the book that Augustine heard that led him to become a Christian in the 4th century. He became probably the most influential theologian in the whole of church history with the ideas that went forward from him. This was the book that Martin Luther grasped that led him to the Protestant Reformation that we were hearing about before in the 16th century. A rediscovery of the doctrines of grace. And it was Luther's commentary on Romans that John Wesley read and became a Christian when his heart was strangely warmed. Basically setting off the evangelical awakening. It's not an, understa- or not an understatement to say that this book has been a major player in nearly every movement of God for the past 2,000 years. It's not an understatement to say that God has used this book to turn history around. And it's not an understatement to say that God has used this book to turn lives around. So as we step into Romans, be prepared for big things. You're supposed to, aren't you, when you do these sort of things, manage people's expectations. You know, uh, lower people's expectations, really, what they mean. But God can exceed our expectations. So as we look into the book of Romans, let's pray that God would work to be changing us and to be changing history through this book. We're going to introduce this book as we go along with the text, because thankfully Paul actually gives us an introduction really to who he is and why he's writing. So three points uh, this morning, all about the gospel. The first is that Paul's life has been taken over by the gospel. Have a look with me again at verses 1 to 5. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. How would you describe yourself? You ever played that game where, you know, you've got to introduce yourself and say three things uh, about yourself, perhaps you'd say, you know, well, I'm, I'm a husband, or I'm a mother, or you might talk about your job. Well, Paul here does the same thing, he gives us three things about himself. Paul sees himself, first of all, as a servant of Jesus. Actually, that's quite a polite way of putting it, really, because the word there literally means slave. He's a slave of Jesus. That's how he sees himself, that's his primary identity. He belongs to Jesus, heart, body, and soul. Jesus is his master. Jesus is his boss. And I know a guy in, in ministry, it's not, it's not, this isn't like Paul when he says, you know, I know a guy in Christ. This isn't me. I know a guy in ministry, he has this written above his uh, bathroom mirror. So that when he wakes up in the morning, this is what he sees. Slave of Christ, slave of Jesus. It's a reminder of his identity. Before he starts his letter, before he gives us anything else about himself, he tells us that he's not his own. He is Christ's. He's a slave of Christ. And as such, Christ has given him his marching orders. He's told him what to do. That's the second thing he tells us about himself. He's called to be an apostle. 
That's what God has called him to be, set him aside uh, for a special task. Paul says that he was an apostle born out of time. So he wasn't one of the 12 that went around with Jesus, but Jesus himself called him to be an apostle on the road to Damascus. And he's been set aside for a special task, set apart for the gospel of God. For Paul, especially, that was to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations. But this was the deal for Paul from day one. He was apostle to the Gentiles. In one sense, they were his responsibility, his patch, so to speak. And the gospel has taken over Paul's life. Because that is what he's all about. He's set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul's three things, really, that he says about himself... They're not really about himself at all, are they? It's sort of as if he goes, well, three things about myself. Jesus is my master, and I'm his slave. Jesus is my king, and I'm his emissary, his apostle. Jesus is good news, and it's my God-given task to see that everyone hears it. That is what Paul is all about, the good news, the gospel. But what is the gospel? Well, in Paul's thinking, it's one word. Jesus. Jesus. Do you see that in verse 3? What's the gospel about? It's concerning his son. It's about Jesus. Now, it seems so obvious, doesn't it, really? But is it? In the way that we talk about it sometimes? So often we talk about the gospel as a sort of package of, of gifts, if you like, or a package of, of benefits, What's the gospel about? Well, it's about forgiveness. It's about a place in heaven. It's about freedom from guilt. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things are certainly outcomes of the gospel. But they're not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is Jesus. He is the good news. What is it about Jesus that Paul thinks is such good news? Well, you can see it in the way he describes him in verses 3 and 4. He's descended from David. He tells us he's the son of God and he's Lord. Descended from David, well, that was promised in the Old Testament, wasn't it? You'll see on the back of your notice sheets, 2 Samuel 7. This was a promise made to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house of my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The son of David was the Messiah, the Christ. Being a physical descendant of David was part of the deal. That's what you had to be. So this is Jesus, descendant of David, the Christ, the promised one. He also calls him the son of God. Now that's linked with the idea of the Christ, because you'll see in that verse he promises to be to him a father and he a son. But it seems stronger here, doesn't it? It's something linked with his resurrection from the dead, with the miraculous. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was powerfully proclaimed to be the son of God. The resurrection itself was a powerful declaration that Jesus really was the Son of God and is the Son of God. And that's something a bit bigger than the Christ, isn't it? Because the Christ, the Son of God can be a title for the Christ, but he's the literal Son of God. 
God the Son. And this powerful proclamation was the work of the Spirit of Holiness. Just another way of talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sees that Jesus is powerfully proclaimed as the Son of God. As he's poured out at Pentecost. The resurrected Christ pouring out his Spirit to see that the message goes out. Some people take this to be a sort of contrast between spirit and physicality. So it's humanity and, and, and his, his godness. You know, fully God, fully man, as we were hearing last week. But it seems more likely with the theme of the gospel, it's to do with the proclamation of Jesus. It's to do with the fact that he was declared powerfully, declared in power to be the son of God. But either way you take it, he is the son of God. That's what Paul is telling us. And he's Lord. That's what we see, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you want a longer version of Paul's gospel, other than Jesus, this is it. Jesus is Lord. He'll say as much way off in chapter 10 of Romans, Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a sort of summary of the gospel that we have to confess with our mouths. So his readers shouldn't be surprised by this. So much is bound up in that one word of Lord. Lord to whom every knee will bow. Master, King. It's also the Old Testament word for God. When the New Testament translates the God's name, it calls him Lord. And the way that Romans uses this word means that it's a claim to full deity of Jesus. He really is God. Son of God can just mean a title, but not when you combine it with Lord. That's something bigger. And his readers shouldn't be surprised by this, should they? Because actually the coming of this one, the Son of God, the Christ, Lord himself, is one of the most hotly anticipated events in history. It's been well trailed, we're told, that he promised it beforehand in verse 2, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, when I was young, not that long ago. Um, when you got a film coming out, an exciting film, you used to get a trailer. Yeah. Nowadays, you get about seven trailers. I don't know if you've discovered this. Really popular films, they do a teaser trailer, and then they do another teaser trailer, and you've got about seven trailers by the time you've got there. There's no way that you can miss that this film is coming out. Well, the gospel, he's telling us, has been well-trailed. God has made these promises again and again and again of this good news that was to come. Centuries and centuries before. The prophets had seen this and written it down in black and white for all to see that the Christ was coming. So Jesus' coming was something new, but it wasn't a new idea. God had promised a Christ who would come in Micah, a suffering servant who would die in Isaiah, a new covenant that would be put in place of the old in Jeremiah. The whole Old Testament was leading up to this great fulfillment as Jesus steps onto the scene. And now this good work, good news is going out into the whole world. You see, there's a purpose to the gospel. It's going out into the world to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul has received his role as apostle. That was his gift, his grace, as it talks about uh, in verse 5. And Paul was to go and take this gospel to the nations. Not to make a name for himself, so he can say how amazing Paul is. But for the sake of Jesus' name. 
for his fame, for his glory. You see, Paul is so much about the gospel. Paul is so overtaken by the gospel that even his motives for sharing the gospel are about the gospel. You see? Even his motivation to share the gospel is that Jesus might be held up for the sake of his name. Jesus and the gospel has taken over Paul's life. So though we've just been talking about Paul at the moment, we'll see actually that this gospel has actually done the same for the readers that he's writing to. Their lives too have been taken over by the gospel. Have a look at verses, I will just start with the first few verses, verse 6 to 7. So, uh, including you, that's taking it out to the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What he tells us here is it's not just Paul that belongs to Jesus, it's not just Paul that's a slave of Jesus, they too are called to belong to Jesus. His readers too are his slaves, if you like, his property. And they too are loved by Jesus. Don't get the impression when it says that Jesus is our master and we are his slaves that he's a harsh taskmaster. Actually belonging to him is the most wonderful position that we can be in. Because our master truly loves us and is seeking our good. But it's not just Paul that's been called by God in his words. They have been too. He was called to be an apostle. They are called to be saints. Literally holy ones. Don't get your idea of sort of, you know, special class of Christian. It just means those who are holy, Christians in general. But it's remarkable, isn't it, that the language he uses is remarkably similar to the first section. Paul has a high calling as an apostle, that's true. But we too have a high calling. So the Romans have a high calling as well. And actually, as I say, this isn't some super class of Christians. This is us. We're called to be saints. We're called to be holy. Our lives too are to be taken over by the gospel, subsumed by the gospel. And by the looks of it, their life uh, is being taken over by the gospel. Have a look in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In verse 8, we're being told that their faith is being proclaimed everywhere. Now, it might just be because they're in the capital city. You know, whatever happens in London, you hear about here, don't you? Because it's the capital. But it seems to be more than that. Good things are happening in Rome. And it can't have been easy for them in Rome. The Jews had been expelled only a few years before for getting into fights, according to historical records, about a man called Crestus which is probably a corruption of the name uh, Christus in Greek, which is Christ. They couldn't quite agree on uh, what was happening. So it seems the gospel had already arrived and the Jews had rowed about whether Jesus was the Christ and all the Jews were expelled from Rome. That edict had lapsed probably only three or four years before this letter was written. So there had been no Jews in Rome for a long time. Many had suffered for proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, but now they're starting to arrive back. When they left, they were probably part of a majority Jewish church because they were the ones that had come and, and told the gospel. Now they were probably being fed back into what was a majority Gentile church, non-Jews. 
And actually that church had functioned like that for a number of years. It can't have been easy for either side as they try and work out what their church should look like. As it's gone through so many changes through those years. Watch out for that in Romans. It comes up again and again, this relationship between the Jews and the non-Jews in Rome. But whatever is happening, their faith is being reported all across the Roman world. And Paul longs to see them. This isn't a church that he planted. As far as we know, he'd never been there before. It's likely that the church had started after Pentecost, when those visiting from uh, Rome to Jerusalem had gone back and taken the gospel there. Please don't believe the lie that Peter planted this church. It's virtually impossible in the chronology of scripture and probably made up by the church in Rome, as as Nick was telling us that the church started to go further and further away uh, to try and make their church look a bit more prestigious. But it's more likely, much more likely, that it was taken, the gospel was taken there by the people uh, who have been there at Pentecost. But Paul still longs to see them. And apparently he's tried to get to Rome before. He's been praying for them. But now he wants to see them in person. That's what he really wants to do. That's what that little section there in uh, verses 9 uh, to 12 is about. Let me read it to you. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. There are two reasons that Paul wants to visit Rome. They're picked up in the parallel section at the end of Romans. So Romans has this bit at the beginning that's very similar to the bit at the end. It sort of uh, starts and finishes with similar themes. The first thing is that we discover at the end of the letter that he wants to go on from Rome to the other side of the Mediterranean. He actually wants to preach the gospel in Spain, uh, not because it's nice and sunny. He was already in a nice sunny part of the world. You know, some, some Monday mornings I wake up and feel, yeah, am I called to Spain? That'd be really lovely. But no, Paul wants to go there because the gospel's never been heard there. Have a look at, well, it's on the back of your notice sheets, Romans 15, 23 and 24. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Rome and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. What he wants is to go there, preach the gospel to them, but then he wants to go on to Spain. He wants their support and help to take the gospel to uncharted territory. That's probably the harvest that he refers to in in verse 13 in our chapter. But the second reason is that he wants to impart to them a spiritual gift to strengthen them. Uh, That's what we read in verse 11, isn't it? What does he mean by imparting some spiritual gift? That sounds a bit sort of strange language. Well, helpfully, we see a bit more in the parallel passage in Romans 16, 25 to 26. Again, you'll see it on the back of your notice sheet. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. See that sort of parallel words there? He's saying there that God will strengthen them. How will he do it? 
He'll do it with the gospel, with the truth that's now revealed, the good news about Jesus. That is what's going to strengthen them. So the good news doesn't just bring us into the kingdom. The good news establishes us, strengthens us in the kingdom. It will encourage them as he shares his faith, the faith, with them and they with him. They will speak the gospel to each other and be strengthened. But Paul, Paul can't make it to them yet. So he writes them this letter. So basically, I'll just wait there. (laughs) Okay. Basically, Paul can't make it to them. He wants to strengthen them by preaching the gospel to them, but he can't make it to them yet. So what's he going to do? He's going to write them a letter. What's he going to put in it? The gospel. The gospel according to Paul. He wants to strengthen them. He wants to establish them. And so he sends them this letter with his gospel. It's there to strengthen Christians. And the amazing and wonderful truth is that we have this letter too. Designed to set out the gospel as it really is, as one book puts it. This is Paul's message to explain what the gospel is, its implications and its application to our life. It's designed not to satisfy all our questions or to make us theologically proud, but there to strengthen us in our faith. And it's not just for the masterminds or the intellectuals among us. You get that sometimes said about Romans. This was written to an ordinary church with ordinary members. Most of them probably with less education than us. Most of them probably not been as Christian as long as many of us in this room. But this was written to strengthen us all. As Paul writes in verse 14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? Because they're such a big mix. They've got both the cultured Greeks and the uncultured barbarians. But the the church there in Rome is a big mix, just like ours. People from different backgrounds. But there is one gospel to all, and Paul is under obligation to tell us all. The gospel here is pictured like something that's been entrusted to Paul. It's been given to him, and now his job is to take it to other people. It's like somebody's given something to someone for somebody else. He's got to take it to everybody. But Paul doesn't do it reluctantly. He's eager to preach the gospel. He's eager to go to Rome. Are we eager to share the gospel like Paul? Well, to think that through, we need to think, why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? And we find out in our last section. The gospel is the power of God. This is really a manifesto of the whole letter. It's there to sort of show us what's coming. The gospel is the power of God. Let me read to you again verses 16. And 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What do you think of when you think of the power of God? Do you think of the plagues of Egypt? Perhaps, or or the parting of the Red Sea, 
or the creation of the universe with just words spoken? Well, here, friends, is the power of God. The gospel. The gospel is the power of God. You used to hear a lot about power evangelism. Well, here is power evangelism. Preaching the gospel. If we have the gospel, we have the very power of God. Power for what? For salvation. For seeing people rescued. For turning people from death to life. The gospel, in that sense, has the power to raise the dead. If you think about it. Not those crazy grainy videos from some obscure republic somewhere. Real resurrection life. Raising the spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And that means, friends, that if we have the gospel, we have hope. No matter how small we ever feel as a church, no matter how tough evangelism ever feels, brothers and sisters, there is hope if we have the gospel. Because if we have the gospel, we have the very power of God for salvation. Let me put it this way. One person with the gospel has more power at their disposal than a thousand people without the gospel. A church with 10,000 with a bank account of millions and a building to die for without the gospel is a dead man walking. It will surely die. If we have the gospel, we have hope. When we preach the gospel, we have God's power in audible form. God's gospel is God's power, not programs, not pounds, not pastors, not numbers, not techniques, not buildings, not backers, not big names. The gospel. The gospel is the power of God. That is what we need to trust in if we want to see people saved. How will we show that we're trusting in the gospel? We'll preach it. We'll preach it. And even if we don't have any of those other things at our disposal, we'll still have the very power of God. We'll still have the very thing that we need. But friends, that means that we must preach it. It's no good having the power of God, is it, and keeping it tucked away. The gospel is powerful as it's preached, told, spoken, explained. That's not all about what happens up front on a Sunday. It's about what happens in the other 165 hours in the week. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. If we want to see people saved, we need to tell them the gospel. Who is the gospel for? Well, it's for everyone who believes. For everyone who has faith. You find that same word all the way through Romans. Um, It's just confusing in English. So faith is the same as belief, is the same as trust. And you sort of see it in different forms. So when it says to all who believe, it really means the same as to everyone who has faith. And this will help us as we go through the book of Romans. But it means that this is a great leveller for us as we have faith. We'll probably hear a bit more about it tonight. But it means that it's accessible for all. If it's by faith, it's accessible for all. It's not about intelligence, because that would exclude the less intelligent amongst us. It's not about being clever enough to follow Jesus. It's not about finance, 
That would exclude poorer people. You can't pay your way in. It's not about background. That would exclude people with the wrong background. It's not even about morality. Because that would exclude all of us, wouldn't it? We're going to discover that in the next few weeks. It's not about gender, sexual inclination, race or age. It's about faith. And that's something that's accessible to even a little child. No one is excluded. Because everyone, whoever they are, can have faith in something. What matters is that you have faith in Christ. To the Jews who got the message first, they had to have faith in Christ, but also the Greeks as well. So if it's for the Jews and it's for the Greeks, in in Jewish thought, it meant everybody, because the Greeks were everybody else, sort of included in, a bit like the way we use foreigner. There's us and then there's foreigners, aren't there? It includes everybody, including you and me. So how were we brought from death to life? We're brought to death to life by faith, by faith alone. By trusting in Jesus and his gospel alone. So there is no need to be ashamed of the gospel. Though we might be tempted to in our world of PR, slick performances, professionalism. Actually we come to that with a message of a crucified Messiah. But in that very message is the power of God. It seems like a weak message. But it's actually a powerful message. The very power of God. To be received, not by your own power and bravado, but by faith. By trusting someone else. That doesn't sound very macho, does it? It sounds very unmacho. We like self-made, self-sufficient people, don't we? But the gospel says no. We receive it by faith. It's all about faith, Paul tells us in verse 17. See, that's um, from faith, for faith. Other translations put it this way. It begins and ends with faith. It's through faith from beginning to end. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's about faith in Jesus. That's what causes us to pass from death to life. That is what makes God see us as righteous. I'm going to press pause there because we're going to meet this word a lot. It's a bit similar to the other one. Paul suddenly introduces this idea of righteousness. So it's absolutely crucial in this letter we get our head around this. You're going to meet all these different words, but they're all really to do with the same thing. Righteous means the same thing as just. Righteousness is the same word as justice. To to declare someone just is to justify them. And that's justification, which is a big word that ended in shun a few weeks ago. So we need to get our head around that these are the same sort of things. To be right with God. To be seen as just. To be seen as innocent. Martin Luther really struggled with this word. Especially in this passage. This verse and this word literally turned his life around. This is what he wrote. I've got it up on the screen I think. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between justice of God. The same phrase righteousness of God. And the statement that the just shall live by faith. That I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sincere mercy of God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, 
Now it became inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. Pretty big words, isn't it? The righteousness of God or the justice of God that it refers to here is not a promise of terrifying judgment. You know, justice will find you out. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that God gives to us. He declares us just or or righteous. He justifies us. He becomes the judge who declares us innocent, in the clear, not guilty. See, the righteousness of God is not a grudge against us, as Martin Luther thought it was to start with. It's a gracious gift to us. When God declares us righteous, he no longer sees us as guilty, even though that's what we are. For God to make us righteous, we must have faith, because the righteous will live by faith. Let me put it this way. If I, Chris, trust in the righteousness of Chris, I'm in big trouble. But if I trust in the righteousness of God that he gives to me, then I'm safe. The problem is that we tend to lean on our own righteousness and not on the righteousness of God. But if we want to live, then it is by faith that we must live. The righteous will live by faith. Which means without faith, we're dead. So what's it going to be this morning? Are we going to trust in our own righteousness? In Habakkuk, that quote, whether that quote, the righteous will live by faith. The opposite of that is pride, being puffed up. Well, we could go around thinking that we're good enough. Do you think you're good enough for God? Well, if that's the case, come back for the next couple of weeks. Because Paul is going to demolish that in the next couple of chapters. He's going to wean us off our self-righteousness. So we can trust in ourselves, but that means that we're doomed. Or we can trust in the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's what Augustine came to do. That's what Martin Luther came to do. That's what John Wesley came to do. Is that what we are going to do? Letting go of our own trophies and treasures and trusting instead in Christ alone. And if we do, do you know what? Our lives will turn around. And who knows? God might even use us to turn history around. Amen.